All right, we'll begin our sermon with prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'd like you all to think back this morning to the dreams that you had when you were a child. Um, and you had the whole world in front of you. Um, grade school seemed to stretch on forever, but you knew that one day you would go to high school and college, and out into the working world, and once you made it out there, you could finally do what you want. You could finally chase your dreams. You could accomplish everything that you dreamed of and be whatever you wanted to be. But now that you are here, speaking to the adults in the room, um, ask yourself, is your life all that you thought it would be? Um, if we're being honest, I think many of us would say not close, um, or maybe not close to anything that you dreamed it would be when you were a kid. Um, adulting is hard, isn't it? Um, as kids, perhaps we were shielded from the pressures that our parents faced. You know, we didn't see the stresses that they bottled up, the arguments they had at the kitchen table, things that happened after we were asleep in bed. Or maybe as kids, we were shielded just from the awfulness of the world. Um, we didn't watch the news, we didn't see all the terrible things that happen every day the unfairness, the injustice, the pain. We had no idea how disappointing the adult world would be. And finally, as kids, we were probably unaware of the brokenness of our own sinful nature. You know, we didn't see ourselves as part of the problem. We had no idea how many different ways we would find in life to let our families down, to let ourselves down, to let our God down. We had no idea how disappointing we ourselves would be in adult life. I know I'm focusing on the negative here, there are all sorts of good things to being an adult, um, you know, being able to go do what you want and eat as much ice cream as you possibly can, but um, things you never could have anticipated, but it doesn't change the fact that other things are still deeply disappointing. Uh, so what do we do about it? Well, when life gets frustrating, Satan tempts us with um, coping mechanisms or escapism, doesn't he? Uh, harmful habits and tendencies and patterns of behavior, things that feel good for a little while, and numb us from our problems, but inevitably they all come rushing back again worse than ever. There are many different coping mechanisms out there, but one that's common to just about everybody is that when life gets disappointing and frustrating, we start to long for different things in life. We say, if only I had a different job, if I had a different schedule, if I had more time in my day, then things would be different. Um, if only I lived somewhere else, if I had a better house, a different apartment. Or if only my, you know, my family troubles, if I had been in a different family or born into different circumstances, then things would be different. If only I didn't have to deal with this one in-law or this one person in my life. I'm not talking about my in-laws, of course. It's generality. This is Lucas's sermon. <laughs> um, a different spouse. Um, if only I had a different metabolism, body type. You know, if I looked a different way, if I could get in shape and impress people, then things would be different. The point is saying, you know, if something were different in my life, there's just this one thing that needs to change, and then I'd be happy, then I'd be perfect, then I'd have the life I wanted. Um, what are we doing when we talk this way? You know, what are we really saying is that we're being tremendously ungrateful for the things we have. And it's really an inappropriate attitude with Thanksgiving right around the corner. Um, the job, the house, the family that God has given us, we should be thankful for. God has poured more good blessings into our lives than any of us deserve. But when life gets disappointing and frustrating, we start to long for different things. We say, if I had blank, life wouldn't be such a disappointment. So this is how we feel. But is it true? 
Of course not. If we actually got the job, if we got the bigger house, um, the body that we always wanted, if we were finally free from disappointment in that one area, and we know the more experience we go on in life, disappointment comes back in some other way. Um, it never lasts long. Um, because this is a disappointing world. It's a broken world. It's a world where almost nothing works out the way that you hoped and dreamed it would. And even when it does, the biggest wins, the greatest moments, the highlights of life are still fleeting. The moment is there, and it's great, but then we wake up the next morning and have to do life again. And sooner rather than later, life begins to disappoint us again. We can deny it, we can fight it, we can do everything in our power to create the kind of life that we want for ourselves, but everything in our power is not enough. The harder we work to find true, lasting satisfaction in this sin-broken world, the more disappointed and disillusioned and drained we become. So it's pretty depressing. Um, but at least we're not the only ones who feel this way. So now we can turn back to our reading um, and look at you know, this chapter called The Hall of Faith, a list of some of the most famous believers who walked before us in the ancient world. And when we look at that, we see that their lives contain disappointment as well. For example, Abel um, got murdered by his brother. I guess getting murdered is being disappointed. Um, you know, Noah, watching his entire world be destroyed by a flood. Uh, Moses, watching God's people be horribly mistreated um, in a foreign land. And then by the time you reach the time of the prophets, it gets really bad. It says some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Very often, God's Old Testament people were not exactly living the dream. Their circumstances were disappointing and frustrating, and all too often their own actions were disappointing and frustrating too. So how did they process this, and what can we learn from them? Well, they longed for something better, but not in this life, rather in the life to come. We read, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. So it's interesting, isn't it? When life gets hard, God doesn't tell his children, Stop complaining, tough it out, deal with it. It's not that bad. Throughout the Bible, God encourages us again and again to go ahead and long for something better. And he wants us to think better than just a few tweaks that can make our life in this world more comfortable, a better house, a better you know, physique, whatever. Um, actually, what, what God wants us to long for is a whole new world, an eternity with him, a world where things are not just better, but things are truly as they should be. God wants us to long for the kind of world where no one is being hurt, no one is being abused, no one is being marginalized or taken advantage of or oppressed or suffering. No one is discouraged. No one is disappointed. No one has to give up on their hopes and dreams. And no one has to die. Longing for a world that good is not a negative thing. It's not escapism or denial. In fact, God describes that kind of longing with a single word, faith. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. God wants us to set our sights on the world to come, because the world to come will be absolutely amazing. And that, in a nutshell, is really what our sermon text is about today. Um, our text comes from Revelation chapter 21, 
And in this text, really the whole book, God is giving the Apostle John a vision of the very, very end of the world. Um, and at this point in the reading, all sorts of important things have already happened. Um, Christ has defeated Satan. The devil's power has been permanently brought to an end because God has locked him and all of his evil angels up in the spiritual dungeon of hell and all their followers with them. And now that all evil has been permanently eradicated, out of sight, out of mind, we learn what's coming next for the children of God at the very, very end of time. So here's what John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Uh, By the way, this is not intended to be scary, even though it's talking about the entire world being destroyed and remade. It's intended to be comforting. Um, God knows that this world is disappointing and frustrating, and so many things in it should be better. But God's not going to gently tweak a few things in this world to fix it up and make it just a little bit better. God's going to redo the whole thing. He's going to make us a whole new world. And so John goes on. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Let's talk about Jerusalem for a minute, um, and especially what it meant to the Israelite people. We have to understand what it meant to them so that we know what a new Jerusalem means to us. Um, For the Israelite people, Jerusalem was as good as it got here on earth. It was the place where God had promised to dwell with his people. It was the place where they worshipped God in his temple. It was the place where the kings ruled, like David and Solomon, back in the golden era where Israel was the leading nation of the ancient world. And then, of course, they fell into idol worship and were exiled, and Jerusalem was captured and destroyed. But a generation later, God led them back, and they rebuilt everything, the house of God, the walls of the city. And by the time of Jesus, even though the Romans were ruling the world, millions of Jews from around the world would gather in Jerusalem on festivals like the Passover. So like everything else in this world, Jerusalem wasn't perfect. It is broken by sin. But for the Israelites, Jerusalem was as good as it got on earth. And what it represented was this unity where God dwells with this people, where they worship people and where things are right with the world. Um, So what does God do? He doesn't gently tweak a few things in Jerusalem to make it a little bit better. He makes it a whole new city. The new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And as we continue to read past the reading, as I encourage you to do, uh, we learn some more things about this heavenly city. Um, it's built with you know, a perfect square proportions. Every part of the layout of the city has been designed to precision. The city gates are never closed because there's no threat from outside. There's no danger that needs to be dealt with. And on top of that, there's no nighttime. It's day all the time. In fact, we learn at the end of the chapter that the city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. We need to work on to one more detail, and probably the best detail of our eternal life in heaven. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This little paragraph is without a doubt the most mind-blowing, awe-inspiring part of this text. God's dwelling place is among the people. It almost sounds too good to be true. Because we know the sad facts from Scripture. Ever since the Garden of Eden, our sin has separated us from God. Because of his absolute holiness... 
God is like light to darkness, antimatter to matter, um, pesticide to cockroaches. They can't exist without destroying the other. Our sin separates us from God. And if you look back in our sermon series, we've been talking about this battle between good and evil, about how deep that separation goes. God exists in a spiritual realm, and we are in a physical realm. And even when we become children of God, the connection points are limited. When God operates in this world, he has to use masks of sorts. Um, Otherwise, his holiness would incinerate us. And so God washes us through baptism. He feeds us through the Lord's Supper. He speaks to us through the Bible. He demonstrates his love to us through other people. But in the new heavens and the new earth, things will be different. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. No more barrier between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. No more masks to keep us at a distance for our own safety. No more walking by faith and not by sight. Physically, spiritually, human beings get to walk and talk and live with God forever. So how can this possibly happen? What happened to that separation? Well, it happened because of the first time that God walked and talked and lived with people. We couldn't go to heaven to be with him, so God came down to earth to be with us. For our safety, he wore a mask, a human body just like ours. And in that body, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, immersed himself in the disappointing, sin-broken reality of this world. Jesus, of all people, can relate to your disappointment. Jesus, of all people, can relate to your frustration. Jesus, of all people, knows what it's like when life does not match up to your expectations or your entitlement. Jesus, of all people, understands that there are things about this world that should be so much better. After all, he came from the holiness of heaven to the brokenness of earth. Um, We know that things should be better, even though we see that they're not perfect. But Jesus lived in perfection, and he still came down to be with us. The ultimate downgrade. Who would ever do such a thing? Well, Jesus did it for one reason, and one reason only, so that you might enjoy eternal victory. That's the language that John uses in our text today. After John sees this incredibly beautiful vision of heaven, God says, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be their children, and they will be my children. And the reason Jesus came to earth was to make sure that the list of those who are victorious will include you. His perfect life gives you victory over every temptation, even temptations that you've fallen into again and again. His death on the cross gives you victory over all your guilt. Jesus paid God price for your sin already, so you don't need to carry that weight on yourself anymore. His Easter resurrection gives you victory even over death. Jesus came to make sure you are victorious. But don't take my word for it. Listen to God's words taken from other scripture readings. Um, In 1 John 5 verse 4, he says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, namely our faith. Or from Romans 8.37, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Despite our sins, despite our shortcomings, despite the poor job that we do navigating all the disappointments of life, there can be no doubt. In Christ, we are victorious. In Christ, we are heirs of heaven. And so let's go back to our first question. Is your life all you thought it would be? This side of heaven? 
Probably not. Things will continue to be frustrating and disappointing and broken. And so we wait. We're waiting for the day that God will make everything better. But in heaven, will your life be all that you thought it would be? Definitely not. It'll be better. You can't possibly imagine it. God promises, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When life is disappointing and frustrating, it's okay to long for something more. But don't settle. Don't long for a marginally better life in this sin-corrupted world. Long for an eternal life with your God, the one who says, Behold, I am making everything new. Amen.